Scripture today comes from Luke chapter 7. I'm starting in verse 36, and I'm going all the way to verse 50, different than what the bulletin says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he, that's Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. He, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon said, the one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned toward the woman And he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here ends the reading of God's word. Now I want to tell you that you are probably just like me. In that you live in 2016 in America. And you probably have no idea what was really happening in the story that I just read you. Because when I read this story, I really didn't understand it either. So let's unpack this. There's a lot of cultural significant, culturally significant things going on in this story that open up the story in a brand new way. The Pharisees are leaders in the Jewish community who argue for very strict following of the law in order to be close to God. They tend to have money. They tend to have nice, large homes. They have good standing in the community. So this Pharisee, a man named Simon, this is not Simon Peter, it's a Pharisee named Simon, lives in Galilee and invites Jesus over to his home. Jesus is gaining in popularity. He's doing miracles. He's giving sermons to large groups of people. There are rumors he may be a prophet. And so this man, Simon, invites Jesus to his home for dinner. He is obviously trying to fill Jesus out a little bit because we see later that he's sort of wondering, is this Jesus really a prophet or not? But he also really may want to just be on the side of Jesus. 
have good reputation in the community by being friends with this Jesus who's becoming a prophet. So he has this big banquet at his house. In a little house, you couldn't do this. But if he has a big house, he can invite all kinds of people to show off this guest of honor. And what would happen in these dinners is they would have a place kind of like a head table or a main area where the important people sat. Those people had a low-to-the-ground table in this case. And sort of, they don't really have chairs so much. They have cushions. And in this meal, they're sort of reclining. They're able to sort of lean over a bit. But in the rest of the house, they would probably invite, the Pharisee would have invited the rest of the community to be part of the dinner. The deal is, though, if you were a lower class in the community, you couldn't go into the main part of the dinner or get too close to the head table. Now, probably when the, when the, the guests would arrive, the important guests at least, a, a servant would have offered some water to wash your feet. I mean, you'd walk around in the dust and the dirt of Israel in sandals. Your feet would be kind of gross. So it was a kindness. It was also protecting your house, right? You don't want people's gross feet walking all through your house. So there's probably water there. There may be oil or some kind of ointment because if you, anybody else having like the dry lips at this time of the year, right? Israel's very dry. So you can imagine if you're in Israel walking around in sandals, your hands are dry, your feet are dry, your lips dry, your scalp gets dry. And so good hosting would involve often having that oil available to help people as they came in. So Jesus is at this meal. He's the guest of honor. And a woman walks in. She's apparently a known woman. People know who she is. She's unnamed in the parable, but you always in the Bible got to watch out for unnamed characters. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a whole all-star team of unnamed characters in the Bible that we just know as the woman at the banquet. But she has a name and she's honored in heaven. There's a, the Bible does this special thing where if it's a fringe character that has something important to say, they aren't given names. You always got to watch out for that. This woman is called a sinner. The word sinner is a special class of person. It would have been a person who was habitually in sin. Okay? They were in sin so much, they weren't welcome in the temple to ever get cleansed. They're called forever a sinner. She's likely a prostitute. Uh, there's some, the way her hair is down, if you were a good Jewish woman, you would never have your hair down. Your hair would be covered. Uh, unless you were in mourning, which is possible here. She uses this perfume or this ointment, which would have been something that if you were in that line of work, you would use to try to attract men. It's, it's pretty likely, and the story has often been read, that she is a prostitute. So she's not supposed to be at this party. She's definitely not supposed to be near the head table. She's definitely not supposed to be touching Jesus in any way, shape, or form. But she goes to this head table in a bold act. Boldness of this woman is amazing. She begins to cry and uses her tears and her hair to wash Jesus' feet. She kisses Jesus' feet, puts ointment or oil on them. That oil would have, could also be translated perfume. They don't have spray bottles back then, right? Okay, there's no spray bottle. So oil can also, this word for oil can also mean like a perfume. So she's there, she does this, and then the text says she continues to do it. In other words, she does it for a long and awkward time period. For a long time, this woman is messing with Jesus' feet, and it's weird at the party. She's not supposed to be there. Everybody knows what she does for a living, or that she doesn't have good standing in the community. 
And yet Jesus lets her do that. I'm sure the crowds begin to whisper, isn't Jesus going to send her away? Perhaps that same perfume had been perfume she used for her services in trying to sell people the use of her body. I wonder if the men in the room had been propositioned by her before, recognized not only the woman, but the smell. Is she trying to pick up Jesus? Is Jesus saying, okay, and going to take this woman home for the night? In the verses just prior to what we read, Jesus is being called a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinner. There's already rumors flying around about Jesus. And now this woman of the night is hanging out at his feet and he's letting. Do you understand the tabloid level scandal that's going on here? Okay, everybody understands this is terribly inappropriate. Any sort of modern connotation of this, I can't even think up of one, okay? Um, you'd be outraged. How could this woman? And so this Pharisee, Simon, witnesses, and he can't believe it. Simon was a good, holy Pharisee. He would never let this woman touch him. Never let her near him. Never talk to her. He's following all the big rules and trying to be super holy. He's doing big things for God, and this woman would never be allowed near her. So the Pharisee begins to pass judgment. The assessment he seems to be trying to make. Is Jesus a prophet? If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. And he would never let her do this. But the text says, he says this to himself. Like he either mutters it under his breath. Or he says it in his head. Not to the neighbor next to him. He's talking to himself. And Jesus responds. Okay, he's wondering if Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is definitely a prophet. He's going to respond to what the guy just thought in his head. He says, I got a question for you. And he tells him this parable, this probably the simplest parable that Jesus ever told. This is a duh answer kind of parable, right? There's, a, there's these two people that owe money. One, in translation, owes about $29,000. The other owes about $2,900. They're both debts are forgiven. Which one is more grateful? And what does the man say? Well, I suppose it's the one who had more, dan- the more debt canceled. What do you mean you suppose? Of course it is, right? The person got forgiven $29,000 worth of debt is definitely the one who's more grateful. Then Jesus does one of the most important things in the whole parable. The text says he looks at the woman and continues to speak to Simon. Okay, So this is awkward, right? If I'm talking to you, I ought to be looking at you. But he doesn't. He looks at the woman, but still talking to Simon. He looks at the woman, and what does he say to you? What does he say to Simon? Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? This is a really dumb question. I mean, on the surface, it's a really stupid question, right? Of course he sees the woman. Everybody sees the woman. We're having this conversation because everybody sees this woman. But Jesus looks at her, talking to Simon, and says, do you see this woman? Because Simon doesn't actually see the woman. Jesus does. He's looking right at her. But Simon really can't see her. She's beneath him. She's trivial. He's doing great things for God. He hangs out with great people, even potentially great people like Jesus. But she's a sinner. She's dirty. He would never let her touch him. He does not see her. And his blindness points to a bigger problem. 
Because as holy as he is, he in the end does not really understand God all that well. Jesus then points out how different her actions are from Simon's. You didn't give me water for my feet, but she keeps washing my feet. You gave me no kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing me. You didn't anoint my head. She has anointed my feet. And then he forgives her. This is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins except God. And God only does that if there's a sacrifice involved. This is blasphemy. But Jesus declares forgiveness for this woman. We are left to wonder in the story, what is the Pharisee missing? Why doesn't he see this woman? Why is he not like Jesus? Jesus sees the woman. He doesn't. Why is he not like the woman who shows love and welcome and such boundless, brave love? And this Pharisee, Simon, has none of that kind of love. What is the problem that Simon has? And do we sometimes have this same problem? Jesus locates the source of the problem for us. This man is not grateful. He sees himself as good and holy. He does a lot of stuff for God. And in the end, he doesn't need God that much. He's a big guy doing big things for God in the world, hanging out with big and important people. He's testing Jesus instead of praising him, feeling him out instead of truly welcoming him. In the end, he sees himself as above Jesus. That is a very bad place to be in our lives. The place where we don't need Jesus. And it causes us, like it causes Simon, to miss what God is doing in the world. Because the Pharisee sees himself as such big stuff. He fails to see God in things that he sees as trivial. Love, compassion, acts of kindness. He's too busy doing big things for God to realize that God is in the little things in our lives. That's the paradox. In a world where we want bigger, bigger businesses, bigger impact, bigger everything, the kingdom of God is radically small, right? It's only the size of a mustard seed. If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Paul writes that if he has prophetic powers, understands all mysteries and has faith that can move mountains, but does not have love, he's nothing. God is so intimate with his creation that he even knows when a sparrow falls to the ground dead. Do you know how many sparrows there are? Anybody have bird feeders? If you have a bird feeder, most of your bird food goes to sparrows. There are so many of them. The Bible says God even knows the hair, number of hairs on your head. Do you even know the number of hairs on your head? For some of us, it's easier to count than others, right? It's sort of a changing number from time to time. God cares about such little things in his creation. And I think that God loves to work in small ways, little things. Because number one, he gets all the glory. And number two, he gets the relationship with us as he works through the little things in our lives. God's king, in God's kingdom, small is big. No part of our life is small or trivial. People are never trivial. Nothing in life is ever, ever trivial to God. If you think there are areas of your life that are so small, God doesn't really care about them, then your God is way too small. God is big enough to not just care about you in big decisions and big problems in your life. 
God is big enough to care about what happens to you on Monday morning. He's big enough to care about you and work through you in relationships that you bump into somebody at the grocery store. God can work through all kinds of things. In fact, in the Bible, again and again and again, God loves to work in little ways to have a big impact. There's a trap, you see. Simon the Pharisee is in the trap. If you think you're big stuff, you don't really realize how much you need God, you tend to not value things that are trivial. You try to serve God in big ways and grand efforts, but you miss what God wants to do in your life day by day, moment by moment, little by little. This gets us into a trap of thinking two wrong things. Number one, you think that you can keep God out of little things in your life and thereby you can control God. We go to God for big things, right? Lord, I'm going to buy this house. Is this the right house? Right? Lord, my kid's going off to college. May this be good. May I... But in, sometimes I think in giving God big things and making big sacrifices in our life, we can hide behind those so we don't have to let God into the small parts. The day-to-day hard living with God. Or we can use this as an excuse to let God out of these areas and thereby we're really controlling God. God becomes a vending machine, a help desk, a genie in a bottle we go to when we need something. But guess what? Who's the Lord in that situation? It's us. We keep God at bay by trying to do big things and not letting him into the little things. But the other trap is that you can choose those that you don't want to love. Those that are hard to love, well, I can just keep them away because they get in the way of my plans and my ambitions and my big things that I want to do for God. You can decide who you want to love and how you want to love them and where you want to put your effort instead of listening to God when he sometimes asks you to do small, difficult things. Again, we're just trying to control God. But you have been forgiven of great things. Without God, you're nothing. And you know what God, you know what that means? That means God calls you to love in little ways. Little ways. If you're married, you understand this, right? There's grand efforts you can make. Oh, it's an anniversary and we're going to do, it's Valentine's Day coming up. We're going to do flowers. And, but, but are the grand efforts the ones that really make your love last? No, it's the little ways that you show love to one another where you show that you really know each other. That's where love really gets strong. That's what God does with us. That's what God calls us to do with other people. Even somebody like this woman who shouldn't be loved according to the the culture. And this woman seems to understand it because she goes and does this little act for Jesus. She's washing his feet. But in doing that act, she's showing Jesus so much more love. Following God means following God in the small things, letting him be Lord of everything, even the little things. Now, this is really bad news if you're trying to go out there and do great things for God. Because maybe God just wants you to do little things. But for most of us, I think this is good news, right? Because most of us aren't, don't have a lot of big things on our plate. We've got little life, little day-by-day living. We go to work or we're retired, so we, we're in relationships. We've got kids and grandkids. We've got neighbors and friends. But maybe that's exactly where God wants to work in our lives. I think God wants to do great things in the small parts of your life. Let him. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that you have forgiven us for so much, forgiven me for so much. 
Help me to stop trying to control you and instead to let love reign in my life, to love others. Lord, help in the little ways. Let each of us let you into our day-to-day lives so that you may be Lord, so that you may reign and you may be glorified. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.